0: book of Romans. This is page 949, if you have one of our Bibles. We're going to be on Romans 15, verse 8, all the way down to verse 21. (coughs) Bear with me, it's a long passage. Romans 15, starting in verse 8. It says, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with this people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. I myself am satisfied satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. This is God's word. You may be seated. Welcome
1: back. Thanks, buddy. Well, good morning. Good to see you. Uh, that selfie thing was kind of unexpected. Uh, I don't know, as a 35-year-old man, you just feel weird taking pictures of yourself. So I think my selfie career's over, probably, but I needed to do it in certain instances while I was uh, in Turkey. Uh, but it's good to see you guys. It's good to be back. Um, really did miss you. Uh, I was with Tim Campbell, one of our uh, one of our leaders that helps kind of think through missions, and um, we've had just an incredible last couple weeks in Turkey, learning, and uh, but a number of times just just missed being here, and and uh, appreciate your prayers for us kind of along the way, uh, and really really thankful for that. So uh, we're going to dive back into Romans as we've been doing uh, over these last few weeks, and hasn't it been just encouraging to to hear from Josh in Romans fourteen, and then from Tom Schrader last week? Just really encouraged by. Encouraged by the number of of men, uh, young and older that can that can communicate God's word with power and with authority and with strength, and so we're thankful uh, thankful for that. We're winding down on Romans, also by the way. This is uh, we've got four messages left from Romans, so th- this is this is uh, the home stretch. Some of you are like, "Yes, thank God, finally!" Um, but uh, but we're encouraged, um, and I'm especially encouraged by this particular passage. It's just kind of amazing in God's providence how how this passage so lines up with what I've been thinking and experiencing and and praying about being overseas these last few weeks. So uh, Paul's going to talk about how the gospel goes everywhere. And I've been in the everywhere places. And so it's just really encouraging to kind of see how this all... Uh, lines up. What we've been looking at over these last few weeks while I've been gone has been this idea of what about these sort of issues of freedom, these gray areas, and Paul's been addressing that in Romans 14 and the beginning of Romans 15, and the general principle of it was that love trumps our preferences. Love trumps our preferences. You may say, this is what I think about what movies I can watch and media I can consume and and kinds of drinks I can and can't have and and all those different areas. The areas of this is how I'm going to raise my kids. This is the kind of school I'm going to do. This is my political affiliation. And what Paul has said over these last uh, few weeks in these chapters has been that love trumps that. Love wins the day. And so he concluded that general idea in verse 7 of chapter 15. He said, Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Welcome one another. And unfortunately, the Christian church has not always been good at that. Oftentimes the church wants to divide itself up uh, ethnically or culturally or socially or based on all these other sort of sub-issues. But the reality is that the gospel of Christ is so big... And so powerful and is able to touch and transcend cultures in such a powerful way that it actually is the kind of thing, it is the kind of news that can allow us across all kinds of barriers to let love trump preferences. And so in this next section, this is what we're going to look at today, Paul is going to give kind of a practical example of how the gospel has gone across all these barriers, how it's gone across all of these different preferences. And so he begins in verse 8. Here's what he says. He says, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. Now, uh, you read that first part of verse 8. He says, I, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, and if you're uh, new to church or new to the Bible, you might hear that word and go, what are we talking about? What is this? And so if you're new to that, uh, it's inevitably an awkward conversation. Um, You can imagine how awkward it was for Abraham when God initiated the idea, and uh, essentially since the time of Abraham, uh, the Jews have been marked by that physical sign of circumcision. I always find it interesting that when God wants to get a man's attention... Abraham, I want you to be fully devoted to me. How devoted? That devoted. Um, So that's been the sign of the Jews, the sign of circumcision. And Paul here says that Jesus became a servant to the circumcised, the servant to the Jews. He was born as a Jew to show God's truthfulness. Why did Jesus come? Jesus, the one who welcomes us. Jesus, the one who teaches us that love transcends preference in these side areas, these side issues. Why did Jesus come? Why did he become a servant to the circumcised? And here's the first thing that we're going to see. This is kind of in the first chunk of this passage, is that Jesus came to the world so the world would praise God. Jesus came so the world would praise God. God. Jesus came to the circumcised. He came to the Jews, but look at why he did it. It says at the end of verse 8, in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. That's the first reason. And then verse 9, second reason, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. So, why did Jesus come to the Jews? One, to establish the promises, of the, to fulfill the promises to, to the patriarchs. Two, so that the Gentiles would glorify God. Well, interestingly, uh, the first promise given to the patriarchs is the promise given to Abraham. You can read it in Genesis 12, where God says, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you a great nation. And I'm going to bless you so that you will be a blessing to others. And through you, all nations of the earth will be blessed. And sure enough, Abraham has sons, and they have sons, and they have sons, and this line passes down until eventually Jesus comes, and Jesus is that blessing to the nations. And he came, as the second part then says, in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Now, get this. This doesn't strike us as as amazingly odd as it would have uh, stricken Paul's initial readers. Okay, because we live in America, we're kind of a melting pot, we're kind of a tossed salad of cultures, and all these different things are together, and even though we don't get along as well as we should, or as, long as, we, as well as we'd like to, uh, we experience multiculturalism in a, in a significant way that isn't experienced everywhere in the world. And so the idea of, of Jews and Gentiles, by the way, Gentile is just not a Jew, right? That's, the world is divided into Jews and not Jews, right? Jews and Gentiles. So the idea of those groups being able to coexist to us doesn't seem that odd. It doesn't seem that strange. But, but to Paul's readers, and even still, and I saw this being in Turkey these last few weeks, all around the world, one of the first questions that people have is, where are you from? What's your ethnicity? What's your background? And really, honestly, only white people in Western culture have the privilege of not thinking about that. But everywhere else, I mean in Turkey, they're they're figuring out, are you a Turk or a Kurd? Are you a Kurd or an Armenian? Are you an Armenian or a Gypsy? What's your background? What's your ethnicity? They're very concerned about that. And in a sense, that kind of nationalism almost trumps any religious affiliation. It's why we watch these wars and these insurgencies and all these things that happen in the Middle East. We can't make sense of it because we're going gosh, you're all Muslims. Quit killing each other. Just get along. But there's all this tribal and ethnic warfare and ethnic cleansing that happens and all of this stuff. It goes back hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And the Apostle Paul here is saying, Jesus came so that not just this one little tribe called the Jews could be saved, but so that the whole world could praise God. That's amazing. In the gospel of Christ, Jew and Gentile come together. And the church in Rome is a great example of that. That's why Paul spent all that time talking about it in Romans 9 through 11. And here he just reminds them Christ is the hope of Jews and Christ is the hope of Gentiles. So from there, he goes on. He actually quotes four different Old Testament passages that predicted this. Even though the Jews kind of forgot about this conveniently, they wanted to be very nationalistic. Uh, In fact, excuse me, I'm I'm at the tail end of a cold, and try not to cough all over us uh, here today, but this will help. Um, In fact, there was a prayer that most Jewish men would wake up in the first century, and they would pray this prayer pretty much every day. God, thank you that you didn't make me a woman. Thank you. Thank you that I'm not a slave, and thank you that I'm not a Gentile. Interesting, I was just listening to a sermon yesterday uh, about Acts 13, and in Acts 13, there's these case studies of three conversions, the conversion of a woman, the conversion of a slave, and the conversion of a Gentile. What that tells us is that the gospel transcends all of that tribalism. And so Jesus, uh, Jesus came so that everyone in the world could, could know Him. And so Paul quotes these Old Testament references that make this clear. He says in verse 9, as it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with His people. Notice it says with His people. Not separate from His people, but together. Verse 11, and again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol Him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. Excuse me. (laughs) So this is a staggering thought. Jesus came... And, and, and get this, I, I understand, you've maybe heard this so many times, maybe you've grown up in church, maybe you've heard John three sixteen so many times, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him wouldn't perish but have eternal life. Maybe you've heard that so many times, you go, yeah, 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 God loves the whole world. That's a staggering thought that is only automatic for you because of Christianity. That. That thought has not been around in most of history until the gospel came. It's a powerful, powerful idea. Uh, part of our time in Turkey, we were with a, a tour group, and, and Ray Baki was a guy who was helping lead that tour. And Ray's a, in his 70s. He's a missiologist and a church historian. And he did a number of kind of devotional talks, and one of them was on Matthew 1 and the Christmas story. If you read Matthew 1, one of the things you'll see there is the genealogy of Jesus. And as you read that genealogy, one thing that stands out to you is that there are four women mentioned in that genealogy. And all four women, do you know what they have in common? You ever looked at that or studied it? They all come from not perfect, sort of clean backgrounds. That's one thing. But the second thing is they're all foreigners. So in the line, in the genealogy of Jesus, there's, there's Jews and Gentiles. And Bachy made the point, he said, so, when Jesus shed his blood on the cross, he wasn't just shedding his blood for the world, he was shedding the world's blood. Because only one person in history has had the opportunity to choose their ancestors. And it's Jesus. And in the line of Jesus are both Jews and Gentiles, signifying that Jesus has come so that the whole world could praise God. Well, that vision captured the Apostle Paul's heart, and if you know anything about the Apostle Paul, you can read it in the book of Acts. He he was, uh, before he was the Apostle Paul, he went by the name Saul, and he was a zealous Jew. He was a nationalistic Jew, and he was against Christianity, so much so that he was persecuting people and killing people, rounding them up to be imprisoned and killed. Well, he has an encounter with Jesus, the Jesus who came so that the whole world would praise God and, and, and... Jesus tells him, I'm going to send you not to the Jews, but to the Gentiles. And so Paul recounts a little bit of his his ministry here. He kind of just encourages them there in verse 14. Take a look. He says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. But on some points I've written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. In the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. He's kind of wrapping up his letter here, and you'll see actually over these next few weeks, there's a few times where you think he's going to end it, and then he keeps going, right? Um, and so he he's he's saying, guys, I'm really encouraged by you. I've written a lot of stuff just to remind you. I want to make sure you have a, a healthy and a robust and a vibrant a faith that can be that can be nourished by the truth of God's word. That's why I've been writing this all to you. And then he says in verse 17, "...in Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God." so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. There's some amazing things here that Paul says. The first thing he says is, I'm proud of my ministry. But get this, I'm not proud because it's me. I'm proud because Christ has worked in me. And Christ has sent me to these Gentiles. These Gentiles that he came for, he sent me to them so that I could bring, in verse 18, bring the Gentiles... To obedience that the, the, these people who didn't know didn't praise God would suddenly trust in Jesus to forgive and cleanse their sin and then they would begin to live for him they would begin to obey him and trust him and see him as their Lord that's why I came And so here's our second point today here's kind of the summary of this part of scripture is that Paul went so the world would obey Christ Jesus came So that the world would praise God. Paul went so that the world would obey God. So this mission has continued. Jesus comes. He sends his people. says, as I have been sent, now I'm sending you. And Paul goes. And Paul preaches. And you see Paul's strategy a little bit in verses 18 and 19. What what did Christ use to, to bring about this obedience? It says, by word and deed. That means both proclamation and demonstration. It means good deeds and bold words. Because it's not just talk. I I served people. I loved people. By the power of signs and wonders. Paul's an apostle, and he has this incredible power and authority to validate the claims of Christ. And it says, by the power of the Spirit of God. That's what Christ has used. And then he says something amazing. Look at the end of verse 19. He says, Christ has done so much so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. He's saying from from Jerusalem to Illyricum, it's done. We got it. It, It's fulfilled. Now, you're not familiar maybe with the geography of this, so let's take a look at this map. This map demonstrates uh, from Jerusalem, that's in the bottom right, that yellow area, up to Illyricum. Illyricum is now present-day Croatia. In between there, you've got Syria, you've got Turkey, you've got uh, present-day Greece, you've got the Balkans. Right to the, to the west of Illyricum is Rome, where Paul is writing to, and eventually he'll end up. His goal, he's going to tell us next week, is to eventually get to Spain on the far left. All of this is part of the Roman Empire at this time. And uh, Paul is enjoying this incredible blessing. Uh, Historians call it the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, where the Roman Empire had been under war for so long, and starting in about 25 AD, they had a period of of about 150 years of peace. And during that time, the soldiers had nothing to do, so they built a highway system across this whole region. The whole region was unified under Roman rule, so people all over the empire spoke Greek And so Paul, uh, this is amazing, He he could go on this highway system all over this whole world speaking the same language, speaking Christ to all these places. And he says, I've been sent to the Gentiles, I've been empowered by God's Spirit, and I'm telling you, from Jerusalem to Illyricum, it's done. We're good to go. I'm ready to move on. You go, can he really mean that? Well, look down to verse 23. He says in verse twenty three, "I no longer have any room for work in these regions, so I'm going to come your way soon." You know, how can Paul say that? You're telling me in that whole map that everybody there that has everyone's heard the gospel. No, that's not what Paul means. But what Paul did is he went and he preached the gospel in a major urban center, and he saw people come to faith and he trained them and he equipped them to go be the church, and he trusted that if he went to these key places, they would ripple out and continue the work of the gospel. It's an amazing strategy. And Paul then says, but, but I got to move on. And we actually get a, a glimpse of Paul's specific calling in verse 20. Look at verse 20 of chapter 15. He says, thus, I make it my ambition To preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. So my goal is to preach where nobody knows. My goal is to preach where nobody's heard. I'm not going to L.A., Paul says. I'm not going to Kansas City. I'm going to Turkey. People haven't heard there. It's an amazing calling. Not everyone shares that calling. right? Paul has more the calling of Steve Jobs than the calling of Bill Gates, right? Maybe this is oversimplified, but Steve Jobs I think of as this kind of pioneer. He's inventing products that previously didn't exist. Bill Gates, on the other hand, is just making those existing products really, really strong. Both guys getting sickly rich off of all of it, right? And some of us have more of a Bill Gates calling. We're called to... to Work in places where people already know the gospel, and there's already some Christian influence, and we're to, to sharpen that, and to extend that, and to develop it, and to make it better. Others, and maybe there are some even in our church, that you are called, maybe right, right this second, but at some point to go to a place where Christ hasn't been named. Both are important work. Both are valid work. One's not better than the other, but Paul's saying, my specific ambition is to preach the gospel in pioneer places where it hasn't been named. That's what drives me. That's what gets me up in the morning. I am going so that the Gentiles, the world, would obey God. He's going to talk more about that journey and more about what he's doing and more about his specific purposes and and about how he wants the Roman church to help. We'll look at that a little bit next week. But I want to take these two lessons... That Jesus came so that the world would praise God and that Paul went so that the world would obey God. And I want to go, okay, what does that then mean for us? What does that mean for our particular mission? And here's the way I want to kind of, uh, here's the way I want to go about it. We had a prayer time on Thursday with our, uh, with our pastors. And I came to those guys and I basically gave, I had three questions. And then we kind of used each question to pray. And uh, here's the first question. And this is all kind of in light of just things that I saw in Turkey that I think have to do with ministry there, but also have to do with ministry here. And the first question was this What would it take for you to become a Muslim? Now, maybe you're here and you're from a Muslim background and you said, check, I'm already done. I already am one. But say you're not. Say especially, I'm talking to those of you who are committed Christians, you love the Lord Jesus, you've been baptized, you celebrate communion, you uh, want to praise and love and worship Jesus. What would it take for you to become a Muslim? You probably can't picture something, can you? That'd be impossible. There's just no chance. There's no way that would happen. Well, that's how Turks feel about becoming Christians. One of the big surprises that I I didn't understand this is because of that strong nationalism uh, of of Turks, ethnic Turks, uh, people who who moved in, uh, essentially their ancestors moved into this Turkish area, This, this land of Turkey was previously full of the gospel, full of Christians, But as the Ottomans came in, as the ethnic Turks came in centuries ago, many of the Christians left, some were killed, some were persecuted, just many just left, aren't there anymore. And so the gospel has been rich in that place, but it's never been rich among those people. And so the Turks are there, and one of the interesting things in Turkey, uh, part of the reason that we can go there and be so open and be so bold is because technically the Turkish government is secular. But... The, I mean, the crescent moon is on the flag because to be Turkish is to be Muslim. So Turks, if you're not Muslim, you're not a true Turk. So imagine that if, if, if becoming a Christian here meant you're not a true American. That would make people go, oh, I don't know about, I mean, I want to believe in Jesus, but I'm a patriot. I'm an American. Well, no, you... To be, a, to be a Christian in Turkey means you deny being a Turk. That's how it feels. So you're giving up everything. What would it take to do that? Would it take someone sitting down and really just clearly with some great illustration helping you understand the Trinity? Would that do it for you? Maybe some really clever program that do it no what would do it would be god would have to move in power which is why almost every testimony i heard of a turkish person coming to faith in christ involved both a human witness and a vision or dream everyone And so people are being loved on and being cared for and being challenged about Jesus and having these conversations and then they have a dream and there's a man in white and he says, hey, go talk to Carl and Carl tells him about Jesus and they become a Christian. But that's what it would take. It would take a power encounter that makes you go, this is, this is real. And that's what's at stake, not just in Turkey, but in many parts of the world where the spiritual and the demonic bondage of lies, nationalistic lies, religious lies, all kinds of history of pain, all kinds of lies about the gospel are are embedded all throughout the culture. This cultural idolatry that's there. And we have our own versions of cultural idolatry. There's different. But, But... what, what I think about is I go, okay, Jesus came so the world would praise God. Paul went so the world would obey God. It means, in part, that we must go until the world has heard the way to God. And part of our going needs to be deep, serious prayer. See, we... Our culture has been so salted with the gospel and with a history of Christianity and with a few great awakenings and with a few different things that we sort of kind of imagine that really it's down to sort of clever programming and good communication and great social media strategies and all these things, and we can sort of be impressed with our human abilities to reach people. And the reality is no one comes to faith in Christ apart from the Spirit of God. And the Spirit is like the wind... You don't know where he came from or where he went, but you know when he moves. And so in our desire to see people come to faith, we need to remember, what would it take for me to become a Muslim? It would take a miraculous work of God. Now, I'm not trying to convince you to become a Muslim. Please don't. Because Jesus is the way. Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the life. Jesus is the way to access to the Father, which is the one name of God that Muslims don't have as Father. He's the only way. And we need to pray that God would work in power. Here's a second question that I asked our pastors and we prayed about. I'll ask you. What if we were the only church in Phoenix? Would Phoenix get reached? Would the gospel spread here? Would there be a movement of Christianity here? If it was just dependent on us? Our church? What do you think? Now, thankfully, we don't have that as a question, right? We have a number of churches in our community and a number of these witnessing communities that tell people about Christ and can live out their faith. But when you do the math of of what... Uh, what Christianity is like, say, in Turkey, one of the things you see is that there are about 5, 6, 7,000 Christians in Turkey in a land of 80 million people. So to put that in perspective, if you had the same ratio, just say in Istanbul, and Istanbul is actually one of the most reached parts of Turkey uh, because it's more open, and uh, there's more secular people that are more open to things, and then more workers have gone there, and a lot of different things. Istanbul is a city of 14 million people with about the same number of Christians as people at Redemption Gateway. So imagine that not just our church was going to reach Phoenix, but our church had to reach Phoenix, Miami, and Boston combined. Cities that size. What, what would happen? I mean, I've been asking this question. What, what, if, all, what if the spread of Christianity in Phoenix was, was going to spread the way we're currently spreading it? What would happen? And listen, I know that that is an overwhelming thought. And you go, I don't, I don't know what I could do. I mean, that's, there's what, I don't know, three, four, however many millions of people here. I don't know what we could do. And listen, I don't think that any one Christian, I don't think any one church can change the world, but I think we can influence our world. And the question is, are we influencing our world for people to know Christ? The church that I spoke at the first week there in Istanbul, about 40 or 50 people, and they uh, were in a region, a, a part of the city in Istanbul on the Asian side, where there wasn't another church within a few hours. There was actually one family there that drives two hours each way, every Sunday, to church because it's nourishment to them it is life to them right they're not going oh you know what there's a soccer game on i'm just going to skip it and they don't have the ability to go you know what this church isn't my favorite you know i don't really like the style of the music or it's too loud or you know the kids program isn't great or man they sure give out way a lot of treats to the kids and i don't believe in sugar and and they don't have gluten-free communion and you know (laughs) think about this these are the kinds of things not saying all that is unimportant but but what a luxury to be able to leave a church because i didn't like this or that and to go to another one you don't have that choice when you're in a place like that and i wonder how often we have adopted a kind of consumer mentality rather than a missionary mentality that says we're going to live we're going to pray we're going to live with bold deeds. We're going to live with bold words in such a way that if, if no one else in our city is faithful to the spread of the gospel, we will be. Well, are, we, are we there? Let me just ask you these questions Who are you praying for on a regular basis to come to faith in Christ? Who among your friends, your family, your neighbors, your coworkers? Are you praying for? Not just hoping or wishing, you're actually praying they would come to faith in Christ. If we don't start there, if this is a spiritual thing, we've got to start there. Let me ask you this When was the last time you shared the gospel? Someone that doesn't know Christ. You told them about Christ. You told them about His grace. You told them about even just what He's done in your life, and you shared good news with them about Christ. They, they came to you and they said, Man, I just noticed that you're more patient than most people, and you don't say, well, that's kind of how I was raised. You said, it's Jesus. I have no other explanation. And you told them about Christ. When was the last time that happened? Some of you, you're in spots, situations of life where you feel like you barely leave your house because you're just surrounded by little minions every day. (laughs) So let me ask you this. Are you training your children in the gospel to love Christ? Are you evangelizing those little minions? because I think you know this, I hope you know this, they're not born saved. They're born rebels. They're born distant from God because of their sin. And so you train them, you teach them, you nurture them in the faith. Are you doing that? Right, we can spread the gospel kind of wide, horizontal. We can also spread it vertically through the generations. What if you left a legacy of faithful Christian witness? for generations to come. Then let me ask you just, what are you living for? What are you living for? right? If, if, if we were the only witness in Phoenix and people were to look at us and look at our individual lives or our lives together as a community and go, this is, <coughs> this is what they care about, what would they say? Would, would Jesus be noticeable Would he show up? Would he be a blip on that radar? I hope so. If if what we believe is, if if we really believe it's true, we've got to live differently than that, than we normally do. All right, so the first question was, what would it take to become a Muslim? Second question was, what if uh, we were the only church in Phoenix? Third question is this. What if everyone in our community were LDS? I go, where did that come from? Okay, I'll explain it. So when I think about um, our LDS friends, maybe you're here and you're from that background, and if you're you're part of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, uh, we would love for you to become a Christian, to put your hope in Christ. Maybe you've come from that background. We don't believe it's the same thing. The missionaries who show up at my door don't think it's the same thing. We, we don't believe it's the same truth, the same religion, the same faith. But here's what I find in our, in our community, I think, is somewhere, depending on where you live, 20, 30, 40, 50% LDS. And for a lot of Christians that I know, and I'll put myself in this group, I kind of view that as being the unreachable group. You know, their lives are together together. They take care of each other better than any of us could. They have better kind of social programs for each other. If something goes wrong, they're there before we are. I mean, they're organized. They're on it. They're sharp. They have resources. They have connections. They have influence in the city. They're on it, right? So we'll reach people. we we'll just... Won't reach them. Kind of throw up our hands, right? And you talk to them, and they have this kind of automatic script that they say. Well, the Bible's, you know, true to the degree that has been translated correctly, and it's, it's been changed over time, and, and uh, you know, it's, it's not just grace. I mean, that's too easy, and they, they kind of have this whole script of resistance, right? Well, well, here's what I saw in Turkey. Everybody's like that there. There's a growing but small group of kind of more secular people, and the missionaries there, the workers, are really wrestling with do we even keep trying to go after the Muslims or do we just go after the secular people? Because they seem a little easier. Now, for them, their pie of, of secular people might be more like 10 or 15 or 20%. For us, it might be 60 or 70%. But what I felt convicted about was we've just ignored trying to reach the LDS. Essentially what we've said is, to hell with them. We'll focus on the people we think we can reach. And I don't know about you. I feel burdened about that. And I don't know where that leads. I don't have some new initiative to roll out. I don't know what that means. But I'd love for you to join me in starting to pray that there would be a significant move of God among the LDS community coming to faith in Christ. What if that could happen? what would it take for that to happen? It's kind of like the first question. It would take a powerful move of God. It's not going to take your cleverness. You might even go, wow, but I haven't taken a class on Mormonism. Pray. Seek God. Yeah, learn what you can. Get trained as much as you can. But but that's relying on human wisdom. Rely on the power of God instead. So those three questions shaped our prayer time, and they, um, in a way that doesn't feel entirely organized right at this very second, they shaped my thinking. And so as I come back, I go, Jesus was sent to the world so the world would praise God. Paul went to the world so the world would obey God. And we continue that mission. And We can't change the whole world, but we can influence ours. And we can pray, and we can see God work in powerful ways. Listen, I want to tell you about a couple things before we uh, wrap up. Um, A couple ways that you can just be involved and participate in uh, kind of this continued ministry to Turkey, um, and just some things maybe to be praying for. Um, The first is tomorrow night at 7 o'clock, if you're able to come. Uh, Tim Campbell and I are going to make a presentation in the lobby. We'll have some pictures. We'll talk more in detail about our trip, kind of try to synthesize some of the lessons. And we'll give you an opportunity to pray. We'll give you some things to pray for. And we're going to aim over the course of the year to have a number of of prayer events where people can come and gather and pray for our ongoing work uh, in Turkey. I want to show you a couple pictures of some of the guys uh, just that we're doing work with. And uh, you can just kind of be praying and encouraging uh, for them. So the first one, uh, this is one of those selfies Josh talked about. I'm awfully close. Um, so, in between Tim and myself is a guy named Hakan. Uh, Hakan uh, was a former leader in the Communist Party and came to faith in Christ and now follows up on about a thousand people every month who watch a Christian TV station and ask for information. And so you can be praying for him. We support him. Uh, on the far side uh, for me is Ali. And Ali is one of the pastors of, of this church. Uh, that that I preached at. He did the translating for me into Turkish, which was really fun. And I actually went to Denver Seminary. He and I know some some of the same people from Denver. It literally is a small world. Um, And uh, they've uh, talked with us about the possibility of would we maybe someday send some people to come over there and help train some of their leaders. Uh, They're actually looking to plant some multi-congregational churches in Istanbul. We were excited to talk about what that meant. And then the next picture is a picture of uh, Mark. And uh, Mark is a guy that, he was here a number of months ago, he and his wife, and uh, they are doing pioneer church planting in a part of Turkey uh, where it isn't one Christian for every 20,000 people, it's one Christian for every 200, 300 plus thousand people. And they're the only ones in that community. Um, he had a fantastic meeting a day or so before we were with him with essentially kind of a bishop of the, of the, um, of the mosque there in their city, um, that kind of thing and so please be praying for Mark uh, we'll continue to do that um, in the coming uh, days as well so anyway join us tomorrow for that, uh, for that kind of information thing on Turkey and to pray and then another thing you can join us for this is information about this in your program uh, is the upcoming peace feast uh, the peace feast is coming up in, in November 22nd it's going to be here at Gateway and we're hosting um, a, a guy who, who runs a Turkish and Jordanian restaurant and they're bringing in food And it's a chance to sort of hear about their story and hear about their culture and build relationships uh, because God is sending uh, the nations to us. All right, here's where I want to finish. I want to finish with some encouragement and some hope (coughs) because on one hand, I feel like, gosh, this is overwhelming. There's this whole world that doesn't know Christ. And here we are what do we know what are we doing what difference can we make it feels absolutely overwhelming and i can't help but think about how the early disciples felt can't help but think of matthew 28 when they're gathered there on a hillside and jesus says all right boys go into all the world and they're looking around going us there's only there were 12 of us and you know we lost one jesus Really? I mean, who thinks that's a good strategy? And yet, one of the most moving times for me in our time in Turkey was uh, in the city of Heropolis. Heropolis is a kind of sister city to Colossae and Laodicea. Um, in Heropolis, there's these hot springs um, that a lot of people would go to for medicinal things. And in the, in the letter in Revelation where it talks about you're neither hot nor cold to the church of Laodicea, it's a reference to the hot springs there. And uh, one of the things that we saw when we pulled up to uh, Heropolis was a bunch of stones kind of out in the distance. You can take a look at this. I tried to zoom in. This is kind of up on this hill from where we sort of pulled in. We asked the guide, we said, what, what is that? He said, oh, that's, uh, that's a place commemorating the death of the Apostle Philip. You know, Philip was one of those 11 men gathered there with Jesus on the hill who heard that call. And Philip's life ended in western Turkey at Heropolis where he was nailed upside down and stoned to death. And there's a tomb, I took a picture of it, there was a church kind of built around this uh, commemorating Philip's death. And that may sound grim and that may sound morbid and, but here's what I was thinking. Here's this man who was friends with Jesus. He ate and drank with him. Jesus cooked him fish. He saw him move and breathe. He heard him cry. He saw him make a a whip of cords and turn over tables. He saw him. And he didn't just see him in his life, but he saw him after he was raised from the dead. And that reality that Jesus was risen from the dead so moved this man that no matter what happened in Jerusalem and no matter what kind of persecution arose, no matter where God sent him, and God eventually sent him to western Turkey in Heropolis where he was a pastor of a church and he was faithful and yet he experienced persecution there. And persecution to the point where even at the risk of death he would not renounce his faith. Listen, people don't knowingly die for a lie. Right, if this was just a story that Philip and all the other apostles made up, right before they nail him, they're gonna, he's going, hey guys, I, you know, we just sort of made this thing up to get some power. But that's not what happened, because he didn't have power. Instead, he faced people who were opposed to his message all day long, and he did it boldly. Why? Because he'd seen the risen Christ, And because he knew that Jesus came so that the world would know him. And as I sat there and I looked at that tomb and I went up on that walk and I prayed, and I just thought, God, help me to be courageous like that. Help me to love you so much that what I value so much is you, even more than my life. And God, you haven't sent me at this point to Turkey. you sent me... Arizona but I want to live as boldly as Philip lived and I want to face whatever changing winds of culture come and whatever opposition comes I want to face with that same level of courage and love and boldness because Christ is risen from the dead there's no one like him let's pray father in heaven thank you for this opportunity to reflect uh, not just on your word but on that trip and God, thank you for the way that you are working around the world. And I pray even uh, right now for Hakan and Ali and for Mark and for a number of the other leaders that we were able to meet there. God, I pray you would strengthen them. I pray you would help them to not grow weary in doing good despite death threats, despite opposition. God, would you give them boldness and courage. And God, would you give us the same thing? Would you allow us to be such a faithful witness of Christ that if we were the only church in this city, the gospel would move forward. We pray for that and we thank you that we're not alone. We thank you that you have people here all over this city preaching good news. Help us to be among them, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Luke.